0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: This is Season 7 of Office Hours, and we're considering the Holy Spirit, the Lord and Giver of Life. In the Nicene Creed, Christians everywhere confess that the Holy Spirit spoke by the Prophets. Ancient Christianity was marked by the highest regard for the Scriptures as God's Word, given by the Spirit through the prophets and apostles. Since the 18th century, however, much of modern Christianity has been taken up with discussions of and arguments about the nature and reliability of Holy Scripture. The modernists said that enlightened people could no longer accept Scripture as the Word of God. They began to criticize Scripture in a variety of ways and undermine its authority and reliability. Westminster Seminary was born in the midst of this controversy. It was established in large measure to defend the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture in the original autographs. Mike Horton is J. Gresham Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. He teaches our class on the Christian mind, where we address these issues. And he's author of a brand new book, Core Christianity. This and other faculty titles is available through the Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. wscaledu dot E-D-U slash Bookstore. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Good to be back. Why is it so important to remember that the prophets and apostles spoke as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, as Scripture says, that it was breathed out by God as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.16. Why is that so important?
2: Well, you know, the term inspiration isn't all that helpful, especially in our culture, our Hallmark culture, where everybody's inspired by beautiful sunsets and seals. Theonoustos really is God-breathed. It's exhaled more than inspired. It's expired, exhaled. That's really important because I think that not only the term inspiration, but the idea that a lot of people have is that really uh, sensitive spiritual people were able to divine things about the universe that the rest of us kind of miss, and so they were inspired in that sense. And so what we have as the written scriptures bubbled up within the prophets and apostles, these religious geniuses, they emoted on paper, and that's how we get the Bible. I think that's the view that a lot of people just sort of assume. The prophets and apostles themselves were not inspired. They were regular, ordinary people who could make all sorts of mistakes as they went about their business during the day. If they shared their political views with you, they could be wrong. When they spoke from God, for God, either orally or in their written texts, God said that. God said what they said. Without suspending their human involvement, the Holy Spirit nevertheless was clearly in charge of what was going to be said and how it was going to be said so it's very important to see that the scriptures come from god not from Human beings. That's the basic point that we're making here. Scripture comes from God. And if it didn't come from God, then it's just the views of a certain group of first century Palestinian Jews, not the record of God concerning God.
1: Mm -hmm. All right. I'm over here taking notes because you said a lot of different things, important things. And I want to go back and touch on those because you hit all the notes that I was hoping you would hit. First of all, the first distinction you made is between a sort of subjective inspiration, that is, as you were saying saying we're inspired by a Hallmark card or something. We're inspired by some experience. so the first thing you want to say is that's not what inspiration means. I think what you were trying to say, or part of what you're trying to say, is that Scripture is expired, in a sense, breathed out— By God. By God, more than breathed in, in a sense. And the second thing is that it's not the person who was inspired. It's the text. And further, not everything an apostle said or thought— or wrote down necessarily, is necessarily inspired by God. What does it mean, then, when Paul says, breathed out, and then Scripture also says, carried along. They spoke as they were carried along. I'm thinking particularly about your comment earlier about the personality of the authors. How do we relate this being carried along and it being breathed out with the evident fact that we see the actual different personalities of the authors of Scripture?
2: Sure. Well, I think that the use of that verb carried along is really interesting when you look at all of the different verbs that could have been used, such as put in a trance, suppressed, basically their own minds and souls were turned off. And their imaginations negated, and the Holy Spirit basically spoke through them the way Muhammad is thought by Muslims to have dictated the Quran directly from God. And
1: sometimes that's described as the mechanical view.
2: Yes, exactly. Of inspiration. Exactly. No, carried along means that they were not making this up. In fact, that's the context. Peter says that no prophecy came from the prophet or apostle himself, but they were carried along. And in that context, he says, we saw him. We were eyewitnesses. We were there when all of this happened. So the Holy Spirit is ensuring that their testimony is true. And faithful and accurate. I mean, you know how it is. Sometimes we report stories. We really think that the way we're reporting it is exactly the way it happened, but it's off at points. Well, we have the divine testimony added to the human testimony. It's not just a human testimony. The Spirit is ensuring that what they're testifying to is actually true. They're reporting things exactly the way they happened. That's important for us, for our faith, that we're not just relying on historical testimony. We're relying on divinely inspired historical testimony. You look at Luke, for example, Scott, and... You know, how does he uh, begin his first volume? Luke and Acts are part one, part two. Luke says, Dear Theophilus, this Roman patron, we don't know much about him, but he was a significant figure. And he says, I've decided to go around and interview all the people who are living who have recollections of Jesus and his resurrection. And I'm writing this gospel and the book of Acts after interviewing lots of people. So, it's basically shoe leather, journalistic work. I want to produce, he said, an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That's very different from Jeremiah, where God comes to Jeremiah and he says, say this to my people. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, and he basically writes down what was said. So, in scripture, you have, as the writer of the Hebrew says, God spoke to the fathers in many times in many ways, not all in the same way. Very important for us to realize. To the prophets, sometimes he said, write this down. Yeah, and put a period there. But in much of Revelation, what we have is more taking into account the life, the experience, and the labor of the prophets and the apostles, going out and, you know, collecting information. Imagine with Luke. The Holy Spirit was not just there at the desk when Luke is writing this down. The Holy Spirit was there as Luke was going out on his five interviews he had that day to meet with people and to remember properly, correctly, everything that he had heard. So, there's a diversity in the ways that God reveals himself, but the point that's really important to take away is that regardless of the degree of human involvement, and this is key, regardless of the degree of human involvement, human fingerprints all over the text, the Holy Spirit was inspiring that text so that it would be without error.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
2: There's a diversity of of
1: genres, a variety of genres, a diversity of authors, times, places, even languages, right? The listener may, perhaps likely, receive Scripture in English or some other language, but perhaps not in Hebrew, doesn't open up a Hebrew Bible or read sections of it that are Aramaic or Greek. And yet, Scripture, with all this variety, all the different genres, there's arguably poetry. There's narrative. There's um, apocalyptic, that is, visions of heaven. There's prophecy. There's
2: wisdom literature. An extraordinary variety. More like a library than a book, someone has said.
1: More like a library, right? I mean, after all, there are 66 books, compiled, written over, you know, 15, 1,600 years in a variety of different places. And still yet, it all holds together. It's unified by an overarching story— and held together and given to us through human authors without error by the agency, the work of the Holy Spirit.
2: That's such an important point. Those two points together are one of the existential reasons that I am so persuaded of the divine authority and origin of Scripture. You know, when you read the Quran, do that sometime, just, you know, uh, maybe not for your devotions, but take out the Quran and read it and think about the contrast with the Scriptures, and not just the Gospels, but with the whole of Scripture. There's no plot, there's no narrative thread connecting the first surah to the last. It reads like a cookbook. You're
1: not kidding. Just as a, a literary work, it's a very difficult work to read and to make sense of. Yeah. I would say that the reader should start at the end because there's a little bit of narrative there and you get a little sense of context. Yeah. But then yeah, as you go back and sort of start at the beginning and work through, it is sort of incoherent.
2: In style, it is closer to Proverbs. The closest yeah. book in the Bible, I think, is Proverbs. And it's got a lot of that just
1: over and yeah. over and
2: over again divinely dictated recipes given by an angel
1: to a prophet in some ways it's like the book of mormon right also
2: allegedly delivered
1: by an angel to a
2: seer yep and you know this is the irony of it all (laughs) you don't get any sense of muhammad's personality because that was the whole point to take muhammad out of it he was just a vessel you also don't get any sense of a narrative arc because there's no gospel there's no promise to be fulfilled So just in its very nature, and you know, you mentioned 1600 years, written over a span of 1600 years. You don't get the diversity of personalities, the diversity of cultures, the diversity of languages over 1600 years and reading like one unfolding story from Genesis to Revelation without a divine author. The reason it has that unity despite all of the diversity without falling apart into a cacophony of voices is that you have to have a divine author who's the playwright putting all of this together.
1: What do we mean then when we talk about the inerrancy and sometimes the infallibility of Scripture? Let's define those two terms and then let's dig into those.
2: The term inerrancy is a rather new term, but the idea goes all the way back to the church fathers. Well, I mean, arguably back to the New Testament itself. Here's where I would start. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and his view of the Bible, therefore, should be ours. Anybody who rises from the dead kind of gets to tell you what the view of Scripture is. If he said he's God— And he rose from the dead. His view of Scripture should take precedence over yours and mine.
1: And who ascended, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead, but Jesus ascended and poured out his Holy Spirit. That's right. And so it's the Spirit of Christ who gave us, through the human authors, Holy Scriptures.
2: That's right. But we only know that because Jesus was raised in history. And because of that, everything that Jesus said about the Old Testament, which of course was all that they had at that time— Everything Jesus says about the scriptures is the view that we should have. And here's what Jesus says. When he quotes an Old Testament passage, he says, God said. When he said, it is written, he was saying what a first century Jewish rabbi would have meant by that. Namely, God said. It is written means this is not the interpretation of a rabbi. This is from God. It is written. It is down on paper forever as canonical, as true. Jesus gave his imprimatur to the stories that moderns find so unbelievable in the Old Testament. Joan and the Whale, Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam and Eve. He lends his credibility as God incarnate to these texts as the risen one. So we work back from there and we realize that if Scripture isn't inerrant, if Scripture isn't without error— Where is it without error? And where is it with error? Why should we trust, as some of our friends argue, why should we trust the scriptures when we read that Jesus was crucified for our sins and raised for our justification, when we take so much of scripture as full of error and contradiction? So, then it becomes subjective again, and now we're falling back on ourselves trying to figure out 2,000 years later what is authentic and what isn't authentic. No, what is written— is inerrant, is inspired by God. Actually, infallibility is the stronger word. Infallible means it's incapable of being in error. Inerrancy just means it happens to not be without error.
1: Okay, and that, exactly, that was the distinction I was sort of aiming for. So, inerrancy is a way of saying there is no error, there are no mistakes in Scripture. Infallibility says it's not possible in the nature of Scripture for it to err.
2: It's a stronger claim, which is ironic because in the 1970s, institutions like Fuller Seminary started the process of moving away from inerrancy by writing into their statements of faith. We believe in the infallibility of Scripture. Scripture is infallible in all matters of faith and practice. And of course, that language in the days of the Puritans was stronger than inerrancy. It's incapable of being in error. But now, in the 1970s, what infallibility came to mean in evangelical academia was that it doesn't err on really important stuff. (laughs) Whatever you judge to be the really important stuff.
1: I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now. R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain the central importance and the central truth of
0: justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. White. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.EDU. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So the historical
1: claims, or what some people might have called scientific claims, anything that didn't seem to some to impinge directly on salvation, those things could be set aside as potentially errant or fallible. But the spiritual claims, the theological claims, or things about salvation, or maybe Christian living, those things were regarded to be inerrant and infallible. Is that a fair summary? Of- it
2: is, it is. And the Roman Catholic Church kind of kicked this off with Vatican II, saying that the Church and Scripture are infallible. In fact, Vatican II uses the language inerrant for Scripture. But Scripture is inerrant, the Church is infallible, only in this sense that she can't lead you to hell. She can't lead you so astray that you are missing a doctrine of salvation. Well, that's very different from what Vatican I meant by infallibility. (laughs) So, we've seen this change. Or trend, or or much of the medieval church. Yeah, Yeah. So, we've seen this drift where language doesn't mean what it used to mean, and infallibility has lost its definitional sense, and now is something softer than inerrancy.
1: But here, we are convinced that Scripture is infallible in the old-fashioned sense of the word. Yeah, or inerrant. And therefore, inerrant. It's not possible for Scripture to err. And we say that all of Scripture, not just parts of it, but whatever it says, whatever it means to say, whatever it means for us to believe, we receive as the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And so, we don't sit in judgment over Scripture, sorting out, well, this is true, and this is maybe not true, or this is false. We receive all of it as true. Now, that's not the same thing to say, for example, that every translation is inerrant, right?
2: Some people walk into church and will hear their pastor say that the ending of Mark's gospel, for example, is probably not there. So if you have translations that have it there, that just to let you know, we're not preaching on that because it's not probably canonical. Or the
1: woman taken in adultery from John seven fifty three to 8, whatever it is.
2: Exactly. No, we're not saying that our translations are inerrant. We're saying that the original autographs are inerrant. Now, a lot of people will say, first of all, what are original autographs? what the Prophets and Apostles, their circle of amanuenses. What they dictated to secretaries. That's right. What was put down on those original documents is inerrant. Now, that's what is inerrant, not the copies that were made. The first copy that was made from those documents is not inerrant. So, what do we do? Well, we have a whole discipline called textual criticism. There's this immense wealth of textual evidence that you don't have for Homer, that you don't have for Thucydides. Plato. Yeah, it's amazing. You go to Barnes and Noble, or now you order on Amazon, one of these classic texts from antiquity, and you just assume that you're reading Plato, or you assume you're reading Thucydides. Yet there is far less textual evidence. The first copies that were written down were, in many cases, centuries later. And there weren't many copies, so you can't compare one copy to another. Just to net it out, the New Testament is absolutely rich with a textual history, an abundance of texts that you can compare. And what happens is when you compare those texts, you're able to arrive at an approximation of those original autographs. If you couldn't do that, there wouldn't be a discipline of textual criticism that even non-Christians and liberal religionists engage in. And
1: Christians have been doing textual criticism through the whole history of the church. We've always recognized that scripture has been copied, right? It used to be that someone might sit in a room full of scribes and read out a line of scripture and then people would copy it down or perhaps a scribe or a copyist is looking at a copy of the text and literally by hand making copies in various mistakes entered in, sometimes in that process. So that's why we compare these copies, these texts, and they come from various parts of the ancient world, and so we can group them into families. And this is one of the things that we teach our students to do, is textual criticism. It's not sitting in judgment over the truth of Scripture. It's seeking to arrive at the most accurate text of Scripture. And so, just in case the listener isn't familiar, you were referring to the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. If you look closely, for example, at your English Standard Version, there's a bracket there right at Mark 16.9. Or in John 7.53, there'll be a little bracket, an asterisk, a mark, and it will say most copies or some copies of Scripture do not have this ending or this portion that's in brackets.
2: And it's of no significance. It's important for listeners to know, it is of no significance at all to the Christian faith. Nothing changes. Nothing is lost by the longer ending of Mark.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
2: We have all the truth of Scripture,
1: yeah, and it's just a question of what the most accurate copies are, what the most ancient copies are, and what the most likely reading is. And we look at the external evidence, we look at the internal evidence, and we come to a judgment. As I say, this is something we've been doing for a long time. So, the Scriptures are inspired— and inerrant in the original texts, and that's what we're seeking to recover. But translations are always a work in progress, right? That's why most of them get revised. For example, if you remember the NIV when it came out in the 1970s, if you can compare the the first edition of the NIV to the NIV of today, you'll see some significant differences between then and now because the translation has been revised. Sometimes people say that inerrancy was an invention or infallibility was an invention of Warfield and Hodge at Old Princeton. And I think we've already touched on that, but just hit that for a minute.
2: Well, a couple of things. First of all, a lot of people say that the Achilles heel of inerrancy is that inerrancy is only attributed to the original autographs. Well, we don't have original autographs. It's hypothetical. Why would you say that it's so important to affirm inerrancy of the original autographs that we don't have? Well, that goes back to the point we've been making. If you can approximate And again, the very existence of a discipline called textual criticism assumes that you can approximate the original autographs, and that whatever differences are still outstanding among scholars as to what is basic, original to those sources, is not of consequence to the Christian faith. You know, did Jesus say at the end of the Lord's Prayer, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen? Probably not. Again, look at your ESV and see what it says there. But good grief. Don't you find that all over Scripture? Glory to God.
1: That's right. Isn't that language in Scripture? It is. And some scribe appended that to the end of the Lord's
2: Prayer. Yeah, and it got in the King James Version. And so, that is a red herring. We can approximate the original autographs. So, that needs to be said. But yes, the historical question, you well know, Scott, you go back to Augustine, for example, We'll go back even before that to Clement of Rome, and the way they refer to Scripture is qualitatively different than the way they refer to even the apostles' traditions. So, they distinguish very clearly between Scripture, what is written. Basil, for example, in the 4th century said, Believe not that which is not written. And that goes all the way back to the Apostle Paul, who said, even in the days of the Apostles, heed that which is written, that which is not written, seek not. So, Basil is just quoting Paul, and Augustine clearly affirmed the inerrancy of Scripture and said that we must not go beyond Holy Writ. So, something happened in the Middle Ages that was a move away from the early church and its confidence in the qualitative difference, not quantitative, qualitative difference between Scripture and the tradition of the church. It's the difference between the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and the Supreme Court. You can have church courts interpreting the scriptures together, but that is subservient to the scriptures themselves. And the early church knew this very well. It's not just Hodge and Warfield's view. So,
1: in our Reformed confessions, we consistently attribute scripture to the Holy Spirit. And we never do that with the confessions. We always regard our confessional documents, whether they be the Heidelberg, the Belgic, the Canons of Dort, or the Westminster Standards— Those are the result of churchly reflection on the Word of God. Which could be wrong. Which could be wrong. And they're always subject to revision according to the Word. But the Word was given to us by the Holy Spirit.
2: That's right. And the earliest church fathers affirmed this view unanimously. They believed that the Scriptures are in a class by themselves— and that the scriptures are inerrant because they're God-breathed, that's an important point to realize when they are making the argument that scripture is qualitatively different. They're not just saying scripture is qualitatively different. They're telling you why. They say scripture is qualitatively different because the scriptures are God-breathed. Everything else that the church says and does is not. It is a reflection of response to interpretation of that which is infallible.
1: So this is why, then, we seek to know what the Spirit thinks and what the Spirit would have us to do and what the Spirit would have us to believe. We seek that in Scripture.
2: That's right. Now, we do that with the church. We don't do it by ourselves off in a corner. As Luther said, that would mean every man would go to hell in his own way.
1: So if I come to you and I say, Michael, I've had a word from the Lord, I've had a prophecy from the Spirit, and here's what the Spirit is saying, how would you respond to that if I came to you with that?
2: What did Jesus look like when he came out of the tomb? I wasn't there, I don't know. Then you didn't have a word from the Lord.
1: All right. So (laughs) even if someone really believes deep in their heart and they're intensely convicted that they received a prophecy from the Lord that they want to share with you, you— As a Bible-believing Christian who believes the ecumenical faith, you're going to rest not on what someone says they heard from the Lord, but on what is actually in Scripture.
2: That's right. Now, if they want to come to me and tell me that they have been wrestling with the Scriptures and godly wisdom— for example, about getting married, and it really struck them that Paul says not to be unequally yoked, and so they broke off this relationship. The Holy Spirit convinced them that they need to break off this relationship as they were reading the Scriptures, or even as they were just reflecting on the wisdom that God has given them through the Scriptures. God has told them not to continue this relationship. Well, I would say that's a word from the Lord, but it's not a word from the Lord apart from Scripture. It's a word of the Lord through Scripture. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from
0: Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.